Hello and welcome to the Abode of Pixels podcast. This is season three, episode seven? Really, who knows? It's like XCOM, episode unknown. Boy, that was a really <laughs> dumb pun. Um, we are here to discuss Pentiment. I'm here with a, a theologian, an amateur one at least. We kind of, we had an earlier recording where we discussed Pentiment and its sort of history surrounding context. And some of the files were lost for that, so we're back for a redux of that. And we're kind of going to be focusing on everything going on around Pentiment, the historical perspective here, what's interesting about this. And I, today, am the uneducated host. I'm Nate. My qualification here is that I was vaguely interested in becoming Catholic at one point. I went through RCIA. I did not commit. And I'm joined by Michael, who is not Catholic, better than Catholic, a Lutheran. Yeah, uh, well, it depends on who you ask. I think our confessional documents actually refer to the Lutheran Church as the true Catholic Church, um, the continuation of the apostolic <laughs> teaching, whereas the Romans are a bunch of dirty papists. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I love them. I would say I am probably more sympathetic to Roman Catholicism than the vast majority of American Protestants. Um I recently told some yeah. random Redditor off for being disrespectful to Mary and denying that she is the Theodicos, <laughs> the mother of God. So, uh, See, that's some Catholic shit. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Yep. Um, yeah, so thanks for doing this again with me. Nate was so kind as to not throw me under the bus. The files that were lost were mine because I did not troubleshoot my audacity instance in advance. Um, lost them to a conflict with apparently Windows Defender will default to not allowing Audacity to save. Um, that's now fixed up, but it doesn't matter because Nate has a new podcast platform. It's 2023. <laughs> Every new month, there's a new podcast platform. We're trying out Adobe's. <laughs> if you hear this, it, it, it works. It's working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you don't know anything about Pentiment, it is so... For lack of a better term, a murder mystery game um, created by Josh Sawyer at Obsidian Entertainment. And you play a traveling artist who who's staying in a small German town. And that small German town has much intrigue and much historical ties to both Christianity, but also to Roman expansion. And the choices you make throughout the game unfold different stories depending on the choices you make and who may or may not be responsible for the murder. So it's highly constricting because if you make one choice, if you dig up a body, literally, this means you don't have time to examine another body. Um, so there's a certain limited framework that you're able to deal with. And Nate and I both played it because Nate asked me to. And <laughs> now we're back uh, to try to talk about it again. But not really. Yes. Uh, so I have written down for once a detailed plot summary. Do we want to get into that or are we going to kind of keep things more high level? Yeah, provide your detailed plot summary. I think it's helpful for <clears> those. <throat> Even if they're not going to play the game, at least they'll know <clears throat> what we're talking about. <clears throat> you are Andreas Mahler. Andreas? Probably Andreas. A journeyman artist apprentice traveling through Bavaria from a couple areas of Europe, depending on what you choose. Come to the town of Tassing in a 16th century Bavaria, overseen by the Kearsaw Abbey, which is attached to the town. A murder is committed of a fellow monk, and Andreas sets out to investigate it. I already messed up his name. 
In Act 2, Mahler returns many years later, very successful in his career and on a journey between clients across Europe in the middle of increased social upheaval and protests against the ever-increasing greed, quote-unquote, of the Abbey. Another murder occurs that you investigate, which is propagated by a person who is referred to as the thread puller, uh, based on their kind of connections with the previous murder. And then you die, maybe? And in Act 3, you play the role of Magdalene Druckerin, who is the daughter of the printer that you encountered in the previous acts, who's collecting stories and information to inform a historical mural inside the town of Tassing's new, uh, what is it, Rat House? The community the center? Rat House, yeah. Through this investigation, the thread puller appears again with their uh, signature notes, whose script is unlike anyone else in the town. And in the conclusion, just as the thread puller appears to be about to block Magdalene's investigations, possibly killing her? not clear. It seems like something bad's about to go down. And right then, Mahler reappears and reveals that he's been hiding around Kearsaw and continuing to investigate the thread puller's identity himself, having lost faith in the kind of pursuits of his artistry. Seems like he's being consumed by, I don't know, depression or something. I think whatever, whatever you call it when you work with rich people for too long. <laughs> the thread puller is revealed to be Father Thomas, who's one of the monks from the Abbey that lived more closer to the village and was influencing reclusive sister Amelie to write notes to people in the town to sway them towards committing the murders. His ultimate motivation, and I think we're getting kind of closer to what the game is really trying to be about here, was to prevent anyone from discovering that the Catholic Abbey saints, who were St. Moritz and St. Satya, were actually Roman saints, Mars and Diana, which he feels would sort of destabilize the town's relationship with the Abbey, and also with uh, Christianity or Catholicism. Uh, which is kind of relevant to the sort of historical events unfolding around this area of the world at this time, the Protestant Reformation. So you end up confronting Father Thomas, and when he's revealed, he causes the Roman underground ruin they're hiding in to collapse, and Andreas and Magdalene escape with Sister Amelie. Magdalene then leaves the village after telling her neighbors about the actual origins of the town saint. That's how I played it anyway. I think yeah. you can also choose to I hide did not. them from <clears throat> Okay, great, because that's interesting. And then the game concludes with a slow, like, Andre Rublev-like slow pan of the mural that Magdalene painted on the wall that you kind of chose through some key points in Act 3. Yeah, Woo! and, you know, honestly, the mural, uh, to your point, I think this is sort of the point of the game, because the choices you make and the narratives you choose to focus on are ultimately what the game's result is. So if yeah. you do not have um, some given context, you may or may not make a right choice or a wrong choice. The game never judges you for it, to be clear. Um, there are multiple possible murderers uh, in all instances, but you never know if you made the right call or not um, because ultimately it rolls up to the thread puller, Father Which Thomas. I, and yeah, I, I think that one of the... I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the game game, but I think there's a little beef you can have with this game that like there's a lot of a lot of the directions the game pushes you into thinking it is like a murder mystery is not actually what the game is really about. Like it kind of ends up being about that at the end. But for the first two acts, you're sort of unable to meaningfully solve these mysteries. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the point, although I could be wrong about authorial intent. Death of the author, we get to determine everything about the theme of the game and what matters to us. Um, 
and and that's actually built into the game, right? So you come to the end and you get to paint a mural that sort of unfolds the town's history. So in the interest of that, just some context for the town. Uh, Tassing is in the German Alps, which is the northern frontier of the Roman Empire um, and its relationship with the, uh, I want to say Visigoths, don't quote me on that. I'm an armchair theologian, not an armchair European historian. Um, but in this in this place, that is also uh, the emergence of or or the meeting place between Roman mythology and also Germanic uh, mythology. And by the time that you're playing this game, it has been Christianized for centuries. Um, the Alps were Christianized about. 500, 600 years before this game takes place. And you are also going through another time of upheaval now as the Protestant Reformation was kicked off um, a couple years before the start of the game. This, the game starts in 1519. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg in 1517, late 1517, specifically October 31st. So it's only been like a year and a half before all of Europe started to coalesce around the ideas of either the Reformation or Catholic authority and the emergence of the modern nation state and who is rightfully to govern the land. As Nate mentioned, Tassing is controlled by the nearby Kirsau Abbey, but Act 2 largely deals with the Peasants' Revolt. And how you portray those instances, the conversion from, say, Roman mythology, Roman paganism to uh, the local paganism, then on to Christianity versus just what the town experienced is the story that you tell through the murals. So with that in mind, I will tell you a little bit of what I did with my mural and um, Nate can can contradict me or say, no, I did the same thing. I'm not sure <laughs> because we haven't recorded in three weeks because this is a screw up. Um, so for my mural, uh, you, you do this in like four panels and the first panel is meant to express the ancient history of Tassing. And so for me, I showed people coming and farming with bronze age implements. And this is mentioned by a character of the town when a farmer is plowing, they might occasionally like turn up, um, an old hoe or like a discarded shovel. And so for me, this idea is that era is about people coming to the town and the settlement and it's, it's a human experience. Then when the Romans arrive, there's some transition, the establishment of the, the aqueduct that's near town. And then ultimately um, there's this Christianization and the relationship to the Abbey, the Abbey comes to town, but the people are still down below um, and doing their farming. And so the Abbey exists as sort of this center point, but is not itself some religious monument to the people of the town. Ultimately, during the Peasants' Revolt, there's a moment in the game where the Abbey is set to torch. Um, but that doesn't matter for the people of the town. What matters for the people of the town is its impact on their lives. So my fourth panel was sort of the aftermath of that revolt as they are tending to their wounded and burying their dead. And so it sort of unfolds this story of the people of Tassing's existence. 
But mate, you mentioned your telling is that you revealed the history of the saints. So what, what's your, what's your mural and what's your takeaway? So I believe the Roman founding myth was where I started and the three saints, then the speech that led to the revolt. And then I think telling the truth. Gotcha. And my goal, what guided me on each of the choices there was like, I'm interested in the, I guess you almost went more of the anthropology route. I was curious for like the, the sociology or the almost more of the history route of like, how did we get here? What is the through line that connects us? Yeah. And, and for me, that through line was really, it doesn't matter what the people of the Valley believe, um, but it matters distinctly what they do. Um, and, and this is probably illuminated yeah, by that you went through RCIA, but didn't commit, whereas <laughs> I am very happily a Lutheran. Um, I will just say this is sort of a doctrine of vocation. Um, you're not a good Christian because you carve little crosses on your shoes, but you are a faithful Christian shoemaker because you make high quality work and do it honestly for a fair price for your neighbor. Um, and so for me, what I wanted to capture was that the human elements of the town, their farming, um, their community, their burying of their dead was the ultimate expression of their human identity and their work as a community, um, which is funny because the town is explicitly Catholic and would have some beef with a, a Lutheran's understanding of vocation in that um, space. But I thought the motivations you can have for Magdalene Druckerin allows her to be like, I don't want to upset the town too much and I want this to be an acceptable art piece while still telling the truth. And I think the truth is what the people of Tassing experience, not necessarily what their emergent and transmogrifying theological convictions were. But you <laughs> went with sort of the mythology aspect. Yeah, so that's there's a bunch of interesting things we could talk about for hours there. Like you're right that I am looking at the beliefs as kind of the the meaningful mask of identity of a religion rather than the acts that underlie it or how those beliefs structure actions. That's what I heard you say, and I think that that's really interesting. Oh, I think that's fair. Um, my character of Magdalene obviously comes from this printer. I guess, like, to bring it up a notch, I think this game did a great job of making it... Like, in some games, when you make the right choice or the ideological choice, it's like why would you ever not pick this? But I think this game does a really good job of showing you like, yeah, if you portray this as just a system of beliefs that have been like forced from above onto the people and that's what you reduce their life to, first of all, you're doing this for their community hall. So that's not really like people focused at all. <clears throat> and second of all, like, it's just not what you experienced in the game. So you kind of like, in thinking that that's how I would be interested in knowing a town's history, I I think I was pushing back on the game a little bit. I think it did a really good job of not making that the obvious choice. Right. And it, it's interesting you talk about what you experienced in the game, because if you're role-playing the game, Magdalene Druckerin did not experience what Andreas Mahler experienced. I think at the time of the Peasants' yeah. Revolt, and obviously in the, in, the, in, in the first act, she's... I don't think she exists, or if she does, she's an infant. And then by the time of the Peasants' Revolt, she's 
at best a young child, but I think in the art, she's like a toddler. Um, and in that, I'm like, my choice for the mural is colored a little bit by how I experienced the game of Andre is smaller, but yeah. Magdalene Druckerin doesn't have any of the knowledge that Andrea Smaller has. Um, and the game is sort of okay with that. You get to make those choices. Um, but to that end, that character switch, I think, has to change your perspective on the game. So on the topic of the character switch, what did you make of that shift? And how did it transform your experience of the game? This is funny because it's, I think it's a question that made more sense in our first recording where we really spent a lot of time talking about the game. I was fresh out of beating it. And I think like act three, when there's this sudden character switch is kind of a startling thing. Yeah. But the longer that this game has sat with me, the more I like totally agree with how we started this episode. Like that mural is the point of this game. Andreas Mahler is there to give you additional perspective to inform your choices of what mural to paint. I think that that's my current feeling on the game. Yeah. Um, and I think one other thing I wanted to say about Magdalene is I, I perceived her as a character who was like, and I played her as a character who was like desperate to understand the systems out that are like affecting the world she was born into. Yeah. She was very much like a rebellious, uh, feminist sort of like, I don't have any time for flirting or marriage. I'm off to understand the world. Yeah. So, so when I thought about there being these huge systems of beliefs over hundreds of years that had cascaded from between different things. I just kind of was playing her as like a big, someone who would gravitate towards that big picture of structures. Yeah, <laughs> and I and, think it, it, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. And I was just going to say, <laughs> I think this is maybe a slight difference between you and me where I think that sort of big picture of structures is a very Nate Stevens way to approach a character who's exploring um, the history of a town. Whereas <laughs> yeah. I when I play a game, I kind of want to inhabit a character. I'm very much a role player. This is my thing. I play I play JRPGs and action adventure games. That's that's my go-to. Um multiplayer games can get bent. Uh I, I play <laughs> for the story and for the characters. And so this experience, I wanted to role play Magdalene Drucker in, but there's only so much I can do to divorce that from my knowledge of Andreas Mahler. And yeah. Magdalene Druckerin um, is the daughter of Klaus. I think that's right. Klaus Druckerin. Uh, and he was very much a, um, a man who wanted to maintain tradition. Uh, we know that he was a devout Catholic. And because of that, when my Andreas Mahler gave a book to this character... I was like, here is a collection of biographies, a hagiography of the saints. And so my Magdalene Druckerin was raised with this knowledge of the saints. And that was sort of her framework is what her father and the presumed deceased Andreas Mahler had passed on to her. And then playing through that was what would this woman who has a great love of the town, but also a fierce investigative streak actually portray. And given that she wants to leave the town, but she doesn't have any hard feelings towards 
Catholicism because her dad is such a devout Catholic and that's what she was raised with, I leaned very heavily into not wanting to undermine the town's mythology, which of course sort of aligns myself unintentionally, I'll say, with with Father the Thomas, with the, with the thread puller, right? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yes, absolutely. But you like, you know, she 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 rejects marriage. It's in her character to not want to be in town. I think both of us left town at the end. Although I think it's probably for slightly different motivating reasons. You kind of went with her as a no bullshit like proto feminist. Well, if I can psychoanalyze us, of course I can. You're a harmonizing father who believes in like happy familial relationships. And I don't want kids. I'm an uncle. And you know what uncles do? They give naughty texts. I did not give Catholic texts to the father. I was like, well, how about this then? <laughs> I wish I remembered what I get. What were the options for that? Um, God, I, I almost want to look it up uh, as we're talking here. But you're recording another episode after this. There's only so much time we can dive into. This is true. But naughty, naughty uncle also sounds gross. Not that kind of naughty, but like, you know. <laughs> right? I'm like, dude, when and if I ever have kids, if you want to be the naughty uncle who gives naughty <laughs> texts to my kids, um, our friendship is going to hit a snag. Talk about some tribulations, am I right? <laughs> um, just, you know, that's, a, that's an archer phrasing mo- moment very much so. <laughs> uh, so I, I think... Again, maybe waiting a while before having these discussions is actually a really cool way to do this because I was a little harsh on that character switch, but it really does. I mean, it sounds like it challenges the role playing for one thing, because you're like, I'm supposed to be painting as Magdalene, but I'm educated as both Magdalene and Andreas. Yeah. And I didn't mention that. I I know I didn't mention that the first time we, we had this conversation. And now that we're having it, I think that's really important when we start understanding my choices to paint versus Magdalene's choices to paint. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, that that experience as Andreas, obviously, I think you and I made very similar choices as we played as Andreas. Um, I think so, too. You, you, you and I mentioned last time we both ended up uh, pointing to a monk at Kurosawa Abbey who was interested in the occult as the murderer of the first murder um, in the game. But that's not, you know, the right choice. And you might not even no. get that option if you don't investigate, quote unquote, the right things. I um, That was such an interesting choice. Okay, so you get the choice of accusing people, right? And you, I, I would think in many or most playthroughs, you get enough evidence to discover that one of the guys in the Abbey is doing occult ritual magic. Which is interesting because it kind of like the way the game presents it, you actually sort of inadvertently really do role play as a Catholic. I was like, oh, get that shit out of here. <laughs> I think I think a cold magic could be kind of cool. Like I'm not I'm inclined towards creating disruption in communities that are homogenous in faith like this, but even but something about the way the game depicts that, it's like he was a logical choice to convict. And then he, you know, gets executed for it. And I was like, eh, I don't think I made the right choice. Right. And this is, uh, and I had the exact same response. I was like, oh, I need to choose someone. Who do I throw under the bus? Yeah. And he, he seemed like the logical choice. He seemed like the right choice. But I'm not There's, sure it was the factual, the truthful choice, right? I made a call 
And I'm like, I'm not necessarily sure that this guy is actually guilty, but I was presented with so many options and not evidence beyond the shadow of a reasonable doubt, but the preponderance of evidence. And I have to choose someone. It's a really interesting, yeah, like it's an interesting game design moment because in games, it's nothing like real life. If this was real life, I mean, maybe at the time, I'm not sure. But in real life, if someone was like, who did a murder? It's like the the Catholic Church's like local official comes to the town and it's like, who murdered someone? You wouldn't just say the person that you had a tiny bit of evidence against. You would think much more seriously about this. And when your conviction becomes an execution, I think it's this, like this moment of like, Pentamin isn't fucking around. Right. And I, I think the the thing is, when you talk about the the Roman Catholic official coming to town and um, he's like, my job is to investigate and enact justice. He's like their local bishop, but the murder took place in the Abbey. So it's sort of almost a, like if a murder takes place in an embassy, like the Abbey itself is sort of the grounds of a church. It is a sovereign unit within the greater Holy Roman empire. Um, And, and to your point, that I mean earlier, Tassing is controlled by Curacao Abbey because Curacao Abbey is sort of the feudal lord over the town, but they don't answer to a prince elector of the Holy Roman Empire. They answer to the bishop. So the bishop comes with some level of secular authority that is not natural or seemingly endemic to our modern conception of separate secular and religious justice systems yes so the so the catholic guy comes to the town and he's like hey this happened at the abbey this is under my jurisdiction but he's there just trying to make it make sense and he's like something some justice has to be done and he doesn't really have sufficient information on any level other than who was accused in the first place um because the Abbey just wants to get rid of old brother Adoc and be like, we don't need this 90-year-old anymore. He's useless. He's a nice scapegoat um, that can allow us to maintain some stability. But a- as we dig in, we find that there's no evidence whatsoever pointing to Adoc, right? As you explore, no. you find different people in the town have like little notes um, that we'll get to in a second when we talk about fonts and typefaces. But there are different notes, there are different <laughs> possible motives. Adoc has zero. and But he's the one that they scapegoated and that the bishop was told was the problem. And so you're the only one investigating at all. And you're given a 24-hour timeline, which is not particularly Not justice. a lot of time to solve a murder, yeah. Well, well, and whereas I do think I made the best possible choice, I'm not necessarily sure it was the right choice, which I guess in a modern context should let us question the nature of uh, punitive justice versus restorative justice in that, oh, we might have made the best choice, but did we make the right choice? Um, is this right. actually true? Yeah, it's like their priority is maintaining community continuity rather than true justice. Yeah. 
in the way you say true justice uh the game i played before this was persona 5 royal um my wife is playing through it right now and it's all built around like individual conceptions of justice and that you have the right um to make these unilateral moves independent of society because society is corrupted and so it's all about justice driving i think i'm interested in playing that game it seems deep I mean, if you have 200 hours to spare, go for it. I wish there was a no-grind mod, but, yeah, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but but I mentioned uh, sort of the notes that everyone got, and they're all done. And you mentioned it in your read-through. Everyone gets these notes in very detailed, beautiful book script handwriting. But that that theme of handwriting is done throughout the game. And as you talk to people, they're presentations to you would will be according to their class and their learning um so the peasants have like a sort of chicken scratch um moment and there's a lot more errors which i want to sidebar for a hot second on how the text is presented there will be a line of dialogue that is presented in text and then a word or two will be misspelled and it'll auto correct itself um which allows us to start seeing um, who is educated and who is not? Who spells things properly and who doesn't? Um, yeah, but we got also the script. You think that's a speech error, not a transcription error? Um, it makes way more sense as a speech error, but right. I mean, I, I suppose it's in terms of game perception: six of one, half a dozen of the other. If I imagine that the people talking to me are range from uneducated to highly educated say the the peasants to the tradesmen to you the artist to the monks sort of that that whole span right um the peasants might have a basic grasp of things and they'll have an error in 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 writing if they were writing or reading whereas the tradesmen would be more educated but still have the occasional blunder and ultimately, the most highly educated in the land, the monks, would have no errors. But since there's no spoken word in the game, it's all based on text, I think for for us, it's not necessarily a speech error so much as a moment to clue to us that this character is either highly educated or lesser educated based on the text. Yeah, I mean, I feel like type is a central mechanic in this game it shows you things that yeah it shows you not only what the character is but what you think of the character and i guess that's why i ask about the transcription error because sometimes when people share certain things the way their type is rendered changes which indicates that it's your perception of them that's doing part of the work here well i guess it could also they could change speech at some point yeah and that's actually something you brought up in our our first talk about this that i didn't actually connect with during the game but i think you're absolutely right right it was just a complete miss on my part that there are moments where you're talking to a peasant and their text changes to sort of a tradesman quality it's like oh they're educated enough to read um i think it's old till that you talk to in like the first act and he says oh i borrowed this book from uh Drucker, the the town printer, and I've been reading it, and you're like, oh, I didn't know you could read. 
And when you do know he can read, yes. suddenly his text changes from peasant text to tradesman text. Which um, is so cool and pretty subtle. Yeah. Like, it sounds like that would be really obvious, but I think there's a few of these moments before I really was like, oh. Yeah. And I didn't pick up on that as a perception shift, but the game sort of allows your character to have perception, even if you as a player miss it. Yeah. Um, and that typefist change happens multiple times um, throughout the game and your perception of that character is modified and then changed in the typeface. So I talked a little bit about how spelling errors take place and I think this is a reflection of just educational class but the typefaces are their own beast in this game um, which is yeah. a I don't think we can do a deep dive. There are, there are other podcasts who have done deep dives on this, and there are articles on um, resurrecting ancient texts or lost texts from medieval manuscripts that I highly encourage whoever's listening to this to go check out. But for you, that talk about uh, typeface and character identities was important. So I'm going to drink this and allow you to go off for a hot second. Um. I just think, I, well, okay, I guess the main thing that comes to mind is imagine being a game developer who doesn't think types are interesting but being on this project. Because apparently that was like a significant bulk of the development effort here. And like, if you're not into types, this is one of those things like, this is like having a friend that gets into like graphics rendering. Like I, I one time I went on a hike with a friend who like kept stopping to look at the ground and inspect the soil and kept saying things like, look at the way the sun's reflecting off the rocks or do you think you could make a bump map of this and it's like something did you go, like did you go on a hike with ruth and not tell me <laughs> that's ruth like this <laughs> ruth, i mean ruth's not into graphics editing, but she will 100 percent stop every like block and a half or so even when we're walking in the city just to be like look at these flowers and how the sun is reflecting off of this glass and oh my gosh it's so pretty the way this is coming down through the clouds and look at those rays and like, look at the texture here on the sidewalk. And I'm just like, sure, we're walking to a destination. And she's like, no, I'm just on a walk. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I feel like it's like, I that's beautiful. That that just means she's more present in the world than you or I. <laughs> uh, I feel like if you were, regardless of whether you were into typeface or not, if you were a developer on this team that was doing the work there, you would emerge from this scarred and never able to like look at a movie poster again without being like, oh, the curtaining. <laughs> I mean, I already look at a movie poster and go, ah, oh, the curtaining, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are some really good talks about it. I am not even going to try to do justice to that. That's a fun area of research. I think they've some some extra stuff has come out since we first recorded too. Yeah. So, um, well, I, I'll say just my my big moment towards the end of the game, actually at the end of the game, when the thread puller and the person who's been leaving these notes for the town is revealed. Um, her text goes from uh, oh yeah, tradesman class to suddenly being the book script that you found on these notes throughout town. Yes. Um, you, well, you realize she's the one that's been writing this beautiful right. purple script. Yeah, and that's suddenly a she's really not cool just moment. like, she, she, she's an anchoress, so she lives in a cell attached to a church, a cell that she cannot escape. There's no door, just like a window both into the church and out into the outside world. Um, 
and she's meant to live there for the rest of her days and she's literally digging her own grave and in digging her own grave (laughs) well in digging her own grave she's sort of what she is the character who stumbles upon the truth of the town's history um which then sets off uh father thomas to become the thread puller but you don't know her background you don't know that she was once herself um in a convent that did a ton of book work a ton of transcription like she is highly qualified highly educated but also highly artistic and her book script transformation to this beautiful purple uh i suppose if you were choosing a font in your word processor document it would be old english um but it's it's not you know i i'm sure there's a technical term for the font but classier it's not gothic it's not uh helvetica it's not it's not roman um it's a highly stylized serif font so i'm gonna go with old english because i'm not a typeface expert but if, like you selected old english in your typeface hers is a more beautiful more artistic and also shockingly more readable version of that um sort of font family and when she makes this transition from being just a like tradesperson a simple nun who's living in a box to this highly educated highly artistic woman for me is sort of that it's literally the climax of the game but the font transformation was the moment when i was taken over i just like was lost in a sense of both oh my god but also a sense of wonder um in what they did in terms of game design and that was just really really cool yeah it's a stunning scene it there's no way uh, it's hard to convey that of typeface change could really convey character change so well but it does and it totally earns it and it's great yeah yeah and you know so we could dig into how much we talked about the game last time uh last time we were here for 30 for 33 last time we did this for three plus hours i don't think we're gonna make it this time partially because neither of us have played the game in the last (laughs) week Um, that's right it's time for michael's history lesson (laughs) well i mean let's talk about the game setting because the game setting is a number of things um both geographically but also temporally in terms of what they're doing um, so geographically, the game takes place in the German Alps, uh, in a state bordering both Bavaria and Saxony. Um, and so in the first act in, in the province of Saxony in Wittenberg in, in 1517, um, Martin Luther presented his 95 theses, um, which are 95 statements that are subject to academic debate, hence a thesis. Um, regarding the sale of indulgences, um, which are stupid. by the Roman Catholic Church. So this is, you know, AP Euro history. If you took it in high school, uh, the Roman Catholic Church at the time had a system wherein you would say, pay five coins, and those five coins would spring your great-great-grandmother from purgatory into heaven. Um, Purgatory being, to be clear, not hell, a place where the eternal soul is purged of any remaining earthly sin 
um, to enter. So anyway, all this to say, 1519, this is a year and a half after these theses were posted by Martin Luther as a subject for debate. And in the next province over is Tassing. And Tassing is a deeply Catholic town ruled by a deeply Catholic monastery. Um, but because everyone you interact with is Catholic, is Roman Catholic, um, to use ref reformers terms, um, they're papists, they're uh, not <laughs> evangelicals. Uh, I feel like it presents the Reformation in a way that is strongly sympathetic to the Catholics in the first act, and then in the second act gets sort of anti-establishment, and then the yep. third act asks you to choose from yourself. Um, that's a really is, good way to describe it. Yeah, that that, that seems right. Right, but the, the topic for debate in the game isn't really matters of theology um, no it's it's matters of earthly governance and what's what's really interesting for me i remember you mentioning this the, the first time we had the conversation it's uh, the first guy who is murdered in the game is a local baron of a nearby um fiefdom and baron rothvogel uh comes to the abbey and he connects with you, Andreas Mahler, as a fellow educated individual, and he wants to talk about interesting things that are worth talking about because all the peasants are simple folk, and the bishop, um, or excuse me, the the abbot of the abbey is just a staunch conservative Roman Catholic who's not interested in the goings on of the world and these new academic debates. And there's this opportunity to talk to him about Martin Luther's ideas at dinner that I did not entertain as Andreas Mahler. Um, I, the entrenched confessional Lutheran who is an active armchair theologian who actually writes material to teach to others um, and is engaged on the amount of um, reading and writing that you would expect from, you know, a blogger from 2008. Uh, I was like, I don't want to have this conversation because I was role-playing Andreas Mahler and it's really rude to have this conversation in front of the abbot who has asked you not to talk about this at his table. Um, just throwing it over to you, do you remember anything about the conversation? Because you actually were like, hell yeah, let's talk about Martin Luther and his ideas. Um, no, I do not remember anything about the conversation. <laughs> okay. Um, that's that's fine, but for for me, um, that that history context was everyone is Catholic. No one wants to deal with Martin Luther until say ten years later, because in yeah. the second act you deal with the peasants' revolt, and the peasants' revolt actually took place um, throughout the Holy Roman Empire, which that territory merged into modern day Germany over the course of the next couple centuries but the holy roman empire um there were some groups based on martin luther's doctrine of vocation what you owe to your neighbor but also his sense of what the church should be about namely the the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments and in christian love for neighbor should allow freedom to pursue your calling um certain groups 
took these writings and basically developed the modern idea of federalism that local uh, local communities could choose their local pastors, but also had certain rights to the land, that the land was held in common. And as long as it was not abused or extorted, um, the governing authority had no right to tell them how to use their shared land other than maintaining uh, its resource and quality. And so there's this long string that became known as the 12 Articles. Um, and based on the back of these 12 Articles, uh, a group, the Schwabian League, went to war with German princes. Um, and these revolts popped up all over greater Germany during the 1520s. And they claimed that they were in continuity with the teachings of Martin Luther. Um, and this is... United, yeah, but were, were these like united by a key antagonist figure that like rode from village to village stirring people up, or were these kind of like things that were already bubbling up in society, and this just happened to be a common flashpoint? Uh, mostly the latter. Um, you would have a few select people, um, such as I don't quote me on this. This is one of those things where my theology runs into my history. And I'm mostly good at I'm mostly good at both of them, but I wouldn't consider myself an expert on um, the uh, the history side. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I want to say there there were a couple of guys who declared themselves prophets in Central Germany and tried to oh. set up a um, a revolutionary society uh, that was an overthrow of the principalities of Germany and the Roman Catholic hegemony. That's uh, and they, they were called, uh, Luther later wrote a tract against them called against the heavenly prophets. Um, huh. but there's a, there's another group there, the Swabian league, which is mentioned explicitly in the game. So Swabia is the Holy Roman province principality immediately to the west of Upper Bavaria, which is where the game takes place. And the peasants of Swabia um, formed a league which created these 12 articles uh, and rose up in revolt, which were not associated with the, I want to say Dachau prophets, but Dachau is also highly associated with the Nazis, so it might not be Tiergau prophets. I don't know. I'm here. The heavenly prophets that Martin Luther wrote against um and he was the, against the, the nazis for sure uh the nazis appropriated him um rightly or wrongly Cringe. Uh, yeah it's 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 a huge thing i could get into um all the things that modern modern lutherans should reject about martin luther because our confessional documents include like three of his writings not all of them um but i'm not going to do that i'm just going to say oof Nazism is bad, okay? If anyone's listening... Uh, if you didn't have an opinion on this yet, let me help you out. Let me help you out. If you didn't have an opinion, Hitler's the bad guy, World War II was completely just, the Holocaust is horrible, um, and you should not hate your neighbor for their ethnic identity nor for their material success in this world. Great. Um, hot take. I know it's very controversial, but... Yeah, pretty uh, crazy. Uh, that said... Uh, the game presents this as sort of Martin Luther's position. Um, 
that Luther riled up the peasants and it's a Lutheran propaganda that is the 12 articles. Luther, in addition to writing against the heavenly prophets, also wrote a tract called Against the Murdering Thieving Hordes of Peasants, which I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it to you to determine which He's, side he of the conflict. He sounds conflict really is. fun. Yeah. This I guy could... drink? Was he like uh, the Jesuit school of uh, Christian? Uh, I mean, his home, which was formerly the uh, Augustinian monastery where he was an Augustinian monk prior to the Reformation, was gifted to him by uh, his local prince, uh, commonly known uh, among the Lutherans as uh, Prince Frederick the, Ra- the Wise. Um, I doubt he's called Wise among the Roman Catholic contingent. <laughs> uh, but Fre- Frederick of Saxony uh, gifted to Luther uh, the, the cloister of the monastery where he was a monk called the Black Cloister. Um, and while he lived the rest of his life as a professor at Wittenberg University and also as a pastor of the local church, uh, he, not he, his wife ran their home, the cloisters, as a boarding house um, for students at the university. And it is well documented that Luther was a really shitty businessman. Um, he'd just be like, oh, we have students over for dinner because they're boarding students at our house. We don't need to pay for this. And his wife would be like, how are we going to put food on the table for tomorrow's dinner? (laughs) And he was, he was a shitty businessman and Katie Luther ran that, uh, ran that establishment like a boss. Um, also famously brewed their own beer and gave us modern hops and lagering processes because Gruet was grown by local monasteries, which of course the Protestants were cut off from. And so they switched to hop production of beer. So if you love um, modern beer, thank the Lutherans. We love Protestants. Uh-huh. But, uh, wow, beer sidebar. Yeah, so the game just kind of presents this Protestant revolt as a uniquely Lutheran thing, even though um, Lutheranism per se would be expressly against it. So there's elements of the game that are sort of survive in their context as Roman Catholic propaganda. Um, right. And I was going to say this, this falls part of like the broader thoughts of Martin Luther, right? That he single-handedly said, fuck you Catholicism when this is all these things he's the nailing, the like things to the door was part of his normal part of the normal process of being of like, theological conversation right ah, right and and that's the thing so he's a doctor of theology he's a professor at Wittenberg Academy and it's like oh I can't email back and forth with someone and say hey let's engage in a debate and broadcast it for two hours on YouTube how do I make known some ideas that we should talk about and invite people to the table Um, to settle this both academically and with reference to canon law and scripture. And you do that by posting public invitations. Um, And that's what the 95 Theses were. They are a public invitation to talk about these issues. Um, But they sparked on something that was a much bigger social problem in Europe at the time. so as you can imagine, the Roman Catholic Church is selling these indulgences, um, which yeah. allows you to spring relatives from purgatory. Yeah. And the people buying them are not the 
Medici. They're not the Carolingian dynasty. They're not, um, man, who's the other? They're not the Habsburgs. It's the peasants. Um, and the peasants are already sort of tied to the land, stuck there, unable to move, unable to advance. But then they're giving out of their meager earnings for the sake of the soul of a loved one. And that's not going particularly well. Um, <laughs> you don't say. Well, so at the same time, in, in Eastern Europe, uh, modern Turkey is called Turkey due to the emergence of the Ottoman Turks. Um, and prior to the Ottomans, there were the Stalgic Turks. And these armies, these Muslim armies, um, have moved across the Middle East and are starting to push in on Eastern Europe. Um, the echoes of which are still felt today. When when you and I were kids, um, not sure how much you remember the Balkan conflict with Kosovo and Bosnia and um, the dissolution of Yugoslavia into multiple smaller states. Um, like we associate that with the end of um, the Soviet Union, which is true in the sense that the Soviet Union gave a did, uh, it gave a reason for Yugoslavia to stay together, right? Yeah, it gave a, a unifying force, some stability to the region. But as soon as Which is, that went away, the conflict was between um, ethnic Serbs, Serbia, predominantly Muslim, and uh, historically... I, I want to say ethnic Christians, although I would maintain most Christians would say it's not a not an ethnic identity, but Eastern Orthodox groups that have a strong connection to sort of uh, ethnic identity, and so it became a war between Christians and Muslims. Even though we now associate it with a greater ethnic war, this is a this is a religious war that has been ongoing for a thousand years and it's still yeah, I've heard it said that ever since Alexander the Great that that is the most conflict torn region of earth and Yugoslavia was very much an exception to the norm yeah for for that time for sure but that that encroachment by Muslim armies into Eastern Europe um, a Europe that was united as Christian did a number of things that led up to this point, including pushed uh, residents of Constantinople out, um, Greek-speaking Christians who brought with them the Greek texts of Aristotle and Plato and moved them into uh, enclaves within Italy, which gave birth, of course, to the Renaissance. We often talk about how the Renaissance was rediscovering these oh, old Oh, that's Greek interesting. Texts. Yeah, like these old Boy, Greek texts. Boy, that's interesting. Yeah, these old Greek texts weren't just like randomly rediscovered. It was they a were group displaced of... from interesting. Yeah, so Eastern Europe moves into Western Europe, and suddenly they have access to texts in Greek, which they knew Greek because the Bible, the New Testament, was written in Greek, and the Old Testament wow. was translated to Greek in the Septuagint. And they started reading these philosophy texts, and as they start reconciling the Eastern European Greek writings with Western Christian theology, and also not just those Greek writings, but also philosophy or theology writings by those Greeks, um, you start running into who is the expert in Christianity, who has authority. 
because um, for literally centuries since uh, the Great Schism, around the year 1000, um, between Western Europe, where the supreme bishop was the bishop in Rome, versus the Orthodox, now you're bringing the Orthodox back in, though not attached to their sort of geographic heads. And this is the emergence of scholasticism. Um, Thomas Aquinas, his Summa Theologica, is considered the peak achievement of scholastic thought. But scholasticism was a school of thought that was basically built on taking... Bringing books to your local elementary school. <laughs> uh, I still have a bunch of anamorph copies. Don't you shame me. <laughs> uh, our Pentiment spinoff podcast. Yeah, I'll do I'll do Anamorph podcast with you. That'd be fun. I would love to reread those. That would be um, weird. Yeah, so they, they bring in like this these competing schools of thought, and there are people recognized in Christian traditions who kind of disagree with each other. Like, how does the death and resurrection of Jesus achieve forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Um in the Christian West, that's primarily relies on um, Anselm of Canterbury, um, Canterbury being a modern day England, Anselm proposed what is commonly called the vicarious satisfaction um, argument that because humanity deserves wait, to- Wait, 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 Vicarious satisfaction is what it's like to have a partner in finance who just looks over her shoulder at the software developer boyfriend, right? I mean, since my since Ruth is the employed partner in this relationship, she totally looks over <laughs> that her shoulder. That would have been a way shoulder. better joke. <laughs> she yes. totally looks over her shoulder. Yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah like, why is she playing Persona Five? She could have just asked you and saved two hundred hours. Yeah, right. She she provides me vicarious she provides me vicarious satisfaction by giving me money. I provide her <laughs> vicarious satisfaction by doing all of the things that's required for her to not stress about that. <laughs> well, that actually sounds very healthy. It's. It's not. It's miserable. We should work no. on it. <laughs> Would you like to be our counselor? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> That's our second spinoff podcast. So, yeah, like Anselm of Canterbury comes up with vicarious satisfaction. Human Humanity, and therefore individual humans, deserve to die before a sinful God, be, in their sin, before a glorious God, because a perfect God cannot abide the presence of sin. Therefore, Jesus' Whoa. death as a human... Um, provides the satisfaction of God's wrath against unholy sin. And by partaking in well, Christ's fun. nature, we can then approach God freely. This um, is what Augustine was throwing down? Uh, this is actually Anselm of Canterbury. Aug oh, yes, sorry. Uh, uh, Augustine's ideas are primarily rooted in our relationship um, to God as it concerns our will and our ability to overcome sin um, independent of him, which is another conversation that doesn't that isn't really hit on in the game but then again neither is anselm's theory of atonement um but in the christian east um most eastern orthodox would subscribe to what's called the christus victor version of the atonement which is that as a representative of humanity in jesus christ um jesus of nazareth died on the cross but in fact was able to overcome death and the power of sin because of his eternal nature. So if you try to divide by zero, it's undefined. If you try to kill something that is immortal, it is unkillable and in fact emerges victorious. So okay. Christ acts as a victor over death and the power of sin. 
And his victory in that sense is what gives us access to the divine nature to partake therein. So scholasticism emerges as this train of thought that it's like, okay, here's Anselm saying Christ vicariously satisfied uh, our debt before God because of our sin. Here's the East coming in and saying, no, 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 no. Christ overcame all of our flaws and allows us to come before God due to um, his victory over those flaws. And scholasticism goes, how can both of these be true? How can we reconcile these theories? Which I would say to you is what we do every day, right? Like modern academic thought reconciles seemingly contradictory things. It's, it is a theological version of yeah, how can quantum I be human theory under versus Newtonian physics, right? It's quantum yeah. physics versus Newtonian physics. How are these things reconciled together? This is this is what scholasticism does on a theological and philosophical level. Interesting. And so Martin Luther comes forth and he says, hey, there's seeming contradictions going on. How do we resolve this within our chosen discipline? But unfortunately, it's at a time when Europe is having severe military and political troubles um, coming in from the East uh, due to the war with the Turks. It's the emergence of ruling parties and uh, the sort of capture of the papacy and the dissolution of the papal states in Italy. And so the church is going from a transition from being a political power where they actually rule geographic territory to being a sort of spiritual advisor to the actual ruling powers. Yes. And there's like a huge amount where all of these are mixed together. And for whatever reason, Martin Luther becomes the flashpoint. And if you talk to Roman Catholic apologists today, you will still largely hear Lutheranism used as a scapegoat for all of our modern problems. But Luther actually emerged out of scholasticism as a sort of rival to secular humanism that, uh, well, not even secular humanism, just humanism that evolved out of Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was doing comparative text. And so who has authority in the church? Well, we have six different codices of the Bible available to us, the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex um, Alexandrius. So which of these are the true text of the Bible? And Erasmus of Rotterdam sits down with a bunch of available Greek texts of the Bible and creates what we now call the Textus Receptus, which is the basis for um, both the Catholic translation, but also the modern King James version of the Bible is relying on the Textus Receptus, which is one guide, Erasmus of Rotterdam being like, okay, I have these six versions where they moderately disagree. Which one do I trust the most? Um, and if, if this authority of scripture is in question, what is the church to teach on top of it? Um, or how does the church derive authority external to it? And the Catholic answer to that is, well, the church legitimizes the Bible. Um, truth is preserved within the authority of the church. Whereas the Protestant answer to that is God has preserved his word through, well, and I say Protestant, I do mean expressly Lutheran, to be clear. Right. I'm not necessarily on the same page as the OG general. Protestants. The only Protestants. Um, 
Oh, it, we are named for the protest. That actually at, makes sense. We are named for the protest protest at Spire, which is a group of Lutheran princes who basically said, "No, you can't force us to be Roman Catholic when we're still hashing these ideas out. Um, we're still in conversation, both theologically and secularly, when we talk about governance." And you're saying, until we figure these things out, you have to be Catholic. And we protest and say, no, we're going to be Lutheran and hopefully we can come to a agreement later. And yeah, it's a pretty cringe that the answer was, no, it's this way because we say it. It's like you have, you're like the most, up until this point, you're the proudest institution of academics in human history. That's your response? That's new? And it took five centuries to pretty much admit like, hey, maybe they were onto something. Maybe we can learn something from them, right? Wasn't that in the 20th century? Yeah, Vatican II makes a lot of concessions to uh, early Lutheran thought uh, tremendously. And to the point that uh, not... I, I, That's I why we can talk on this podcast. It's yeah. Vatican II. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know so much about um, Pope Francis. I don't pay too close attention to decrees coming out of Rome these days. Harold, all you need to know is that he was a nightclub bouncer in South America. That's cool shit. I literally did not know that, and that is pretty badass. <laughs> Isn't that legitimately cool? <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, my, my knowledge of Francis is when he says something that sparks heated debate within like conservative Catholic circles. It's like, is the Pope a legitimate Pope? Because he said something about the environment or our current economic structure that seems threatening is he that that's everything i know about francis um yeah other than other than the movie with anthony hopkins um called the two popes which is awesome highly recommend Wait, it that sounds awesome what is that movie uh so the two popes is anthony hopkins play plays pope benedict the 16th um and i cannot remember the actor who plays uh francis but when Benedict the Sixteenth um, chooses to retire, he calls over um, Borgoglio, who would eventually become Pope Francis, and he's like, "Hey, I'm retiring. You're probably going to be the next pope. This is this is the job for you because the church needs um, modern leadership and reconciliation, and I can't yeah. do this. And it's about the friendship that builds between them." Um, despite their different convictions, um, Benedict being a highly conservative um, individual and Bergoglio being... Wait, he was know, the Francis. first Jesuit pope ever? Yeah. What? Did you just look that up? I just looked this up. Okay, listen to this list of firsts. You want to be cool? Uh, first pope to be a member of the Society of Jesus, Jesuits. Yes. First from the Americas. First from the Southern Hemisphere. And the first pope from outside Europe since the 8th century. Yeah. All right, I got a hot trivia. Which pope was the one in the 8th century that was from outside Europe? In the 8th century? Yep. Oh. Who was pope in the 8th century? Yeah, that narrows it down. Uh, yeah, was this one of those periods where there were like a billion, including like multiple at the same time? I don't think so. Is... He was only pope for 10 years. I mean, all the popes were pope for 10 years down that back then. They didn't have 90-year lifespans. Um, that is true. Oh, uh-huh. hit me. Gregory the third. I was going to say Gregory, but I was going to go with the second just because I had to pick a number for Greg's. Was he, <laughs> was he busy? Oh, he was Syrian. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
I mean, um, it, it Augusta, is, Augusta was African. Hippo was in Northern Africa. Um, yeah, it is weird. You go back in history far enough, and it's like, oh, Northern Africa is Europe, essentially. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess the, in kind of a colonizing sort of way, but yeah, it will in a reverse colonizing sort of way in a lot of senses as well. Yeah, just the the uh, the intellectual and cultural contribution of Northern Africa to uh, both Western philosophy and Western theology cannot be overstated. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. it's it's massive, and so it's it's always funny to me to be to hear um, about sort of Christian as a colonized Christianity as a colonizing force, and it's like a European religion, and I'm like, yes, the religion founded by a first century Jew living in Palestine and spread <laughs> by a bunch of like brown Syrians, and then especially in Western Europe basically founded on the ideas of a Coptic black named Augustine. Totally. I mean, Europe spread it, but it's not a uniquely European idea. It is really the amalgamation of so many cultural influences as beyond that, um, beyond the scope of this talk. It is global as hell. The original globalization. Yeah. But, but to that, but, but to that end, like we're, we're looking at a space where all of these trends intersect. Um, in Tassing, um, where Bavaria bumps up against, it's the northern border of Italy, the southern border of Germany. This area is literally where Roman Catholicism and the emerging Protestant Reformation meet. It is also where the old Roman Empire and the Celtic mythology that would later um, later evolve into Germanic mythology meet. The Celts were present across Central Europe, and now we think of Celtic as like Irish Scottish, which is not is true, but is also just not true. The Celts were a Central European tribe. So the Celts, it's, the Goths, it, the Romans are all right there. The the Protestants and the Roman Catholics are all right there. We think it, of them as Isles peoples because that's kind of where the Roman Empire didn't manage to reach, right? Wales and Ireland. Yeah. And Scotland. Wales, Scotland, Ireland, those British Isles section, those those members of the British Isles um, is what we tend to think of as Celtic today, but the Celts historically um, were a Central European people that then migrated into the Isles. Um, yes, which is wow. There, there's there's a podcast we could talk about the history of England and how English is a Germanic language, but we pronounce everything like we're French because of the Norman invasion. Oh um, man, I'm listening to the History of English podcast, and let me tell you what is boring but interesting at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> a chronological inspection of the English language. <laughs> uh, you'll have to send me a link to that. That actually sounds really interesting. It's um, pretty great. As someone who likes it. But uh, I think the location is, you couldn't tell this story without being in this location. Um, because of not just the peasants' revolt, but where are you going to find Roman statues that are imbued with Germanic and Celtic mythology that then evolve into Christianity and simultaneously tell the emergence of pre-modern Europe. Um, and I, I think that's on I think that's so very clearly on purpose um, in that, so you have you have a statue of Mars in the middle of the hill, which the people of the town appropriate to be Saint Moritz. Um, now Saint Moritz is a 
real saint. I say real question mark because I'm like, I'm not sure if the person actually existed, but he's actually on a record of Catholic saints. Um, it might be hagiography. <laughs> this could be but, a, uh, what, uh, ice. Oh God. What's that thing? Oh, never mind. This is stupid. Uh, There's like a thing from important if true, where someone like it's ice, ice baby. No, it, I don't remember, but basically someone inserted ice, ice baby. <laughs> no, <laughs> baby. That's not right. There's something <laughs> I learned. <laughs> that, that, like the most famous moment of an obscure podcast I used to listen to that's now discontinued is one of their listeners edited the Wikipedia for a film to insert a fictional tagline that was on the movie trailer poster. Wikipedia rejected it. So basically he just made an extremely obscure citation to like a bizarre film magazine. And then when he cited that, then Wiki accepted it. So then it <laughs> became part of the Wiki article and that's been cited as evidence and papers have been written citing that fictional tagline ever since. That's incredible. Um, yeah. So if you want to hack Wikipedia, that's how to do it. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. Um, I'm just like, so, so you have the Statue of Mars that the town evolves into St. Moritz. Um, but you're, you're dealing with a lot of traditions in the game that are Celtic or Germanic pagan in origin. Um, you're dealing with Perkta, um, and from Perk to the Wild Hunt, which evolves into St. John's Bonfire Night. Um, and the Witcher 3 DLC. <laughs> uh, I still haven't played any of the Witcher games, although I did really enjoy Henry Cavill in Season 1 on Netflix. Season 2 was just okay. Um, I think that's the ideal. I, tr I tried starting with Witcher 2, and I was like, oh my god, this game is jank. Right, but how many, how many of the books have you read? Only one, I'll be honest. Okay, I mean, more than me. Um, uh, my, my, my only exposure to Witcher is Henry Cavill's. Uh, I, I think that's a good, that's good. You're good there. All right. But, uh, like what's really interest, what's just super interesting about Bavaria is the intersections of all of these people groups and all of these ideologies and as they evolve over time. So what, what you ultimately discover in, in the end game is the existence of a Mithraeum, um, which is a place of worship and initiation into the Mithraic mysteries. Now, Mithra was originally a Persian demigod who was adopted by Roman legions in the Middle East, and a cult of Mithra spread throughout the Roman Empire with the movement of troops. Um, and the Mithraic mysteries, we don't really know a ton about them, as might be implied by the word mysteries. Um, but in the first century, it was among the Roman army, at least, a bit of a rival uh, to early Christianity. And both of them were based on mystery religions. So in Christianity, we have what are called the sacraments in Greek. That word is mysterion, and it literally just is where we get the word mystery. And so you'd go in Whoa. and you'd be baptized. Um, you'd be drowned in water. Um, and then emerging from the water, you would be a new person. These were done in baptistries. Um, so it would be a closed environment where only the initiates would be welcomed, at least for the, for the early third to like ninth centuries. Um, baptistries were the norm. Uh, obviously the early going bap 
baptisms would take place in any available lake or river. But as you start to become an established religion and you have space, you create rooms where these things can take place. Um, and you'd have separation between male and female because you were baptized naked, and then you'd be given new clothes and emerge as a new person. Um, by the same token, uh, somehow, some way, bread and wine are the body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. And at the time, the, in the early church, when the Lord's Supper was celebrated, uh, there's actually part of the liturgy that expressly calls for catechumens, people being initiated into the faith, to be uh, sent out of the area of worship and that the doors would be closed and barred so that it was only for those who were in the faith to partake of this meal. And so what happened during that meal was literally a mystery. Um, and similarly, the Mithraic mysteries, which we know a little bit about like access to Mithraeums, it describes secret handshakes, it talks about confessional rituals, but we don't know all, I want to say there's nine of them. This is me talking from memory. And so the same way you'd go into a hidden place and you would be initiated into various levels of this cult religion built around a god from the Middle East that was brought back to Europe by foreign armies, the traveling Roman legions. And so I don't think the presence of the Mithraeum is a mistake. It actually tasks us who are aware of this history to say the Romans brought Mithra here. What brought Christianity here and what makes them different? Um, I don't have an answer for that. I just think it's a really cool piece of narrative game design that we have to be confronted with um, these similarities and differences. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. It, yeah. There, yeah. There's just there's just so much where I'd love to sit down with Joff Sawyer, um, the director of the game, the mastermind behind it with his degrees in um, European history. And just and and just prick his brain. Um, Absolutely, I think that'd yeah. be really cool. I'm I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious how early in his game design career this began to solidify as kind of his dream game, and what those early details were, and how much of that this resembles. Yeah, and so that and like as you talk about emotive pixels as a video game book club. Um, what do we draw out of it as a book? What are the things worth talking about? And the things worth talking about to me have always been about that human history, but also about where those cultures intersect and where truth lies between them or with or even within them. Um, and the game does this in a way with your exploration of a labyrinth, right? You're literally in a maze. Ooh, and it's yeah. sort of the, um, the inner realm of Andre Smaller, like Magdalene, interestingly, is never in a labyrinth. But um, yeah, that Andre's is interesting. A... I mean, it, partly because it feels like she's kind of the means for the game to actually achieve its like artistic statement goals, whereas Andreas is definitely your like main character and protagonist. Yeah, but like when you think of the labyrinths, and I I know neither of us have played this recently. But I just remember that labyrinths exist, and you sort of navigate through them at sort of key points in the game, not even 
remember what's in them. It's I, I think it would be a little trite and maybe a bit too obvious in terms of symbolism that to say, oh, it's a labyrinth, you're you're working your way through a maze, find your way to the exit or find your way to the center and find the truth. Although maybe it really is just that ham-handed um, in terms of design. I mean, well, there's some, what, what did you say? The, the origins of labyrinths are unknown? Yeah. So, well, yeah, so we you, should clarify this. The, 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 the game can kind of claim as much intentional symbolism there as it wants since we don't really know a lot. Yeah. So we know that they emerged uh, in Northern and Western Europe starting in like the 1100s, but there's no like written record of where they came from or where they started to be used. Um, over the last 150 years or so, um, I think it was in the late 1800s or so, um, there was a description of using the labyrinth as at Chartres Cathedral to be a sort of spiritual pilgrimage for those who were not actually making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. But again, yeah. that labyrinth was originally constructed in the 12th century. And no one in the 12th century wrote this. So it's sort of like <laughs> putting our interpretation on a symbol back well, a little casting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and the same thing emerged as a method of sort of meditative prayer. Um, about 20 years ago for, for you and me, there was a movement in the U.S. Um, and I'd assume in broader Christianity because there was some interest in the Taizé community in France as well of using the labyrinth as sort of a meditative prayer um, that you'd set your mind on something and as you wound through the labyrinth, you would be pondering this central truth and working your way to the heart. And in working your way to the heart, you'd work your way to the heart of God. But what's That's really just what I understood was like I received that as the actual origin. Yeah, but what's really interesting for the game is you get to the middle, which is the heart of God. So for lack of a better term, you've completed your meditative prayer. But then you have to escape from that escape from your meditation, <laughs> right? So what do you do to escape your inner realms and face the world um, and the reality that 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 awaits you? Because I'm not, I don't think the game does this, although I think it might be a useful thing to talk about very briefly, is there's, there's the truth that you find at the innermost depths of the labyrinth, having pondered whatever you have set your mind to. But then that truth has to be taken out of the labyrinth to confront or reconcile with the reality that is outside the labyrinth, or in Andrea's case, to actually emerge from his exile and death onto the exact actual existence and realities of Tassing. And and for you and me, that's you know choosing what Magdalene draws in her mural um yeah yeah good very good connection yeah not my not not the deepest dive thanks for letting me uh provide a 40 minute not really history not really theology lesson but just all of these things that appear in the game are so intentional and also really interesting to talk about and you gave me a platform to do that which i deeply appreciate yeah 
I think there's also a reading list for Pentiment that Josh Sawyer uh, like kind of posted that seems like a really interesting second place to go from here from here if you're horny for more context, as I would imagine you are if you've made it here. Yeah, well, I will say, like, I think that recommended reading list, at least some of it, um, so it includes just reading through here on the Xbox blog, um, Juror's Journey, Travels of a Renaissance Artist, um, which is a series of essays exploring the travels of Albrecht Dürer uh, and the impact that had on his life. Uh, shout out to Albrecht Dürer. He was he, a woodcut artist. Um, largely was he mentioned a, in the game by name? I don't... That name sounds so familiar. I don't think so. Um, okay. But Dürer uh, did a ton of woodcut illustrations of the Bible very famously, but he also has... I think a complete woodcut retelling of the Aeneid or the Odyssey. Um, oh, that sounds awesome! Yeah, he he does he does great work. Also, um, I have to call out Albrecht Durer's like his, his woodcuts of the Bible um, were originally done to be illuminations of the Luther Bible because Albrecht Durer is Albrecht Durer is ours. You can't have Catholics, of <laughs> course. Um, but then, uh, Faithful Executioner, Life and Death, Honor and Shame in the Turbulent 16th Century, which is... Yeah, that sounds a little more That sounds fun. Um, but he also calls out uh, Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose. Yeah, um, I was curious your thoughts on that. That's interesting. So I haven't read Name of the Rose, but I have seen the movie adaptation starring Sean Connery. Oh, <laughs> that sounds like a great movie night. Oh, uh, I mean... Sean is that what Connery. happens in Lutheran movie nights? Uh, Sean Connery, complete with like, you know, Sean Connery's voice playing a 14th century monk, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, don't, and, and, he, and he's got like a, he's got like an apprentice, uh, like a, an initiate with him as he's investigating this mur- murder and the apprentice, like they, they, they're in an old library in a monastery. And of course, a great deal of the manuscripts in the library are not uh, explicitly Christian. So it's like this uh, this novice monk's introduction to the idea of sex and the the, <laughs> illus- the illustrated nature of like what did Renaissance era people think happened for conception. And so there's highly beautiful, highly artistic, but also for the time, highly graphic depictions of intercourse and fertilization. And <laughs> this like kid monk is like having a moment and, you know, Sean Connor is like, let's not while we're here <laughs> or something. Um, it's like, uh, yeah. So, so I've seen the movie. I have not read the book and I'm not sure how faithful the movie is to the book. Um, but this idea. It sounds incredible. Yeah, but this idea of the books preserved in a Christian library are not explicitly Christian texts, which the game also deals with um, as well. And so there's a ton that goes into it, and you as Andreas Muller get to sort of dig in. But it's also a a murder mystery. Um, And I think I could be wrong, but I I would bet to a certain extent Josh Sawyer read Name of Rose, and he was like, what if I turn this into an exploration of the creation of art and how it tells our story instead of being a meditation um, on Italian monastic life? 
I mean, Penta, I mean, Sawyer even says it's his fantastic or his favorite novel. So I, yeah, I can see that. This must have been a huge, like, germinating moment. I mean, uh, if you're available, we can just have a movie night, uh, get drunk, watch Sean Connery play a monk. Yeah, we, we like, absolutely this, need to do that. That sounds like a great time. Yeah. Um, any parting thoughts, things that absolutely you loved about the game, maybe if you don't remember that specifically, or just what our takeaway is um, from this and what, what we get from it from a video game book club? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think also, like, did you like this game? I thought this game was fantastic, really fun, really interesting. I think it sat really well in my mind. Like, it's interesting coming back after, uh, I think, a couple months now. It, yeah. it really, I think about it relatively often. It's a cool game. I, it does make me think a lot of the forgotten, forgotten City, which I think everyone should play, which touches on very similar themes to what we talked about without there being a mural. Uh, I won't spoil it any more than that, but yeah. I think, uh, come to think of it, you, I think, like I said in the last one, you're probably the only person I could get to join me in a book club for that one. So, yeah, maybe that'll I, happen mean, I, I still haven't played it yet. So, I suppose I'm not really making good on that comment. But, yeah, um, Forgotten Cindy, when you mentioned it last time, sounds super interesting. It's cool. Noted. What um, about you? Uh, for me, I, I really encourage people to play this game, and as much as I have not revisited it, I'd love to revisit it a second time um, just to explore different story opportunities because I think the game really hammers home um, both your perception but also your choices uh, influence the narrative that you're able to tell. And so the game unfolds this narrative, but it's really you unfolding five, six, seven different narratives that are available to you. And so your perception is really limited. And as your perception evolves, the game evolves with it, um, which I think is really fun. Um, this is this is the elusive like double A game. It's not a it's not a blockbuster title. Um, it's not like this small indie. But there's clearly a lot of care that has gone into this as a piece of engineering, but also as a piece of storytelling. Um, and I spent 40 minutes talking about all these intersections that isn't even enough to scratch the surface. So if you're into any of these things, murder mysteries, um, point-and-click uh, mystery games, you're into Renaissance history, you're really fascinated with the intersection between myth and religion, you're fascinated with the emergence of human society built on different stories and mythologies, you just like games. Um, this <laughs> this game should, should be a play. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I think it's worth saying that even if you're if you made it this far and this all seems interesting, but you're totally not knowledgeable about any of this, the game still is really fun. I think it contextualizes this in a way that sort of scratches at the surface while also demonstrating that the writer knows exactly what they're talking about in a way that I think is really approachable and cool. Yeah, I agree. Um, they, uh, thank you again for letting me re-record re this. Thanks for the invite to play. Um, and I'm happy to be uh, the and friends on the uh, emotive <laughs> pixels uh, footnote. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for hosting and sharing. This all was fantastic. Uh, I'll talk to you later, man. Later.